Rusty Quill presents. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. sometimes when I look at the sky what might be looking back and I think that maybe if we're not alone in the galaxy perhaps it's better we never meet our neighbors hello my name is Tyler Bell and I'm the host of the West Side Fairy Tales the story you're about to hear today concerns the aftermath of a terrible industrial accident aboard a space station orbiting a distant star when one of the workers comes to in the aftermath he discovers that something else might also be looking for his fellow survivors. I hope you enjoy today's story, but first, this month's recommendations. This month's literature recommendation is the 1989 science fiction horror novel Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Without a doubt, some of the finest science fiction ever written, 
The novel follows the travels of seven pilgrims to and across the titular world of Hyperion in search of a way to stop a burgeoning interstellar war and the even more dangerous machinations of a sentient killing machine known as the Shrike. The story is told from the points of view of seven characters, all with rich, unique backstories and a tale to tell. Modeled to a degree off the ancient Canterbury Tales, each of the pilgrims shares a story on their way to the final confrontation with the Lord of Pain himself, the Shrike. I call this book sci-fi horror, but it's so genre-bending it literally defies expectations in all the best ways. Each of the pilgrims isn't just a character, but also a genre in and of themselves. As the book goes on, you read horror, political thrillers, detective noir, and more as the greater threads of a world and time-spanning plot come together insanely seamlessly at the end. Anybody familiar with this podcast knows Dan Simmons is my favorite horror author, and by far, this is one of his best works. If you do love sci-fi or you don't, I don't care. This book is an absolute must-read, and not enough people have given it a go. This month's random horror recommendation is the 1997 horror film Event Horizon, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Much maligned by the popular press, Event Horizon is a diamond-in-the-rough sci-fi horror haunted house in space type movie that I've been recommending to people since I saw it cut near to death on the science fiction channel going on 20 years ago. The film follows a crew of a rescue freighter sent out to find a ship, the titular Event Horizon, which had gone missing roughly seven years earlier. After docking with the vessel, they find the experimental ship was successful in its original mission. Testing a dimensional wormhole drive that could let it zip instantaneously from one side of the galaxy to the other. But it seems the experiment's success was the original crew's undoing, as the jump took them not just through a wormhole, but through hell itself. The rescuers soon find themselves suffering from hallucinations and dying off one by one to the forces that now control the ship, and must fight for their lives to survive the horrors beyond the event horizon. I love this film, and I don't give a good god damn who doesn't, though I will be the first to admit it's not perfect. It's rife with cliches and dead-ended plot points, but it looks so cool and the atmosphere is so perfect, I, I don't care. I'm kind of in the majority on this one as far as people who've seen the movie. It's not so bad it's wonderful, like Maximum Overdrive, but if you can find it, you should give it a watch if you've got the time. I'll leave a link in the description for both of this month's recommendations, and if you want to hear more about those, I'll be talking about them at length in the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club episode dropping in two weeks. It'll be here on the main feed if you want to listen, so don't worry about doing anything else to get to it. Now, without further ado, today's story. Dog Star. Mikosh sat back against the dented steel walls of the freight elevator watching asteroids burn odd shapes into the infinite black surrounding the local star. At this distance, the shielding on the farm bay windows was at something approaching 99% tint, though the ionized crystal seemed as clear as simple silicate glass. He waved his hand in front of his visor, watching the light radiation fractalize in the errant fibers on the stitching in his glove. The effect was akin to watching fire creep up the side of a log in slow motion. A phenomenon so alien to the human eye it was almost impossible for his mind to make sense of. Kaid watched him playing with his hands from the other side of the elevator, hood down and his rebreather mask tucked under his arm. 
He took a long inhale off the cigarette he'd lit at the top of the silo and finished it, flicking out the errant tobacco and stowing the butt in his suit. Mikosh's hand-waving gained renewed purpose as the cloud of smoke reached his eyes and nose. You gotta smoke that shit in the elevator every time? Mikosh complained, not bothering to look at Kaid. Kaid didn't respond, just looked balefully out the window, yawning and bringing up the day's work order. We've got three fucking rows to do today, he said, handing the paper to Mikosh. The recycled fibers crinkled loudly, but the paper was so light against his glove Mikosh felt like he wasn't holding anything at all. I can't wait for this goddamn rotation to end. Mikosh looked over the numbers and then down the rows in question. They spread out beneath the great bay windows for miles, looking like great dust pits. Thick wads of dryer lint basking in the alien blue sun. Three, Mikosh whispered under his breath, handing Kaid the crumpled work order. He already felt tired. Kaid folded the little paper carefully and tucked it away in his suit, considering whether he had time for another cigarette and then deciding against it. What are you going to do when you rotate back? There's this ramen place I've been meaning to check out, Kaid said, looking at Mikosh. Kaid was a tall, slender man with almost perfectly nut-brown skin that darkened to near black around his dark green eyes. The man's color seemed to jive just right with the red, tan-trimmed uniforms they wore down in the harvesting bays. Mikosh, himself an odd jumble of pale skin tones and garishly colored hair and eyes, thought his uniform made him look like a fast food worker. Which, coincidentally, he had been before taking this assignment and the roughly 10% pay raise it entailed. You like ramen? Mikosh asked, stepping forward to look out the window at a downward angle. The gray fields were rushing closer and then gone with a whoosh of air as they passed into the service hub at the heart of the silo. Everybody likes ramen, Mikosh, Kaid said, standing and cracking his neck in time with the pneumatic hiss of the elevator docking and station. The doors cracked and Mikosh followed Kaid into the service hub. Silver, diamond plate floor spread to the walls in every direction demarcated here and there by orange and red and blue lines that sequestered off areas for certain workers and equipment. For most of the operational year of the station, this deck would be packed to the brim with laborers and technicians and heavy equipment operators milling about to their respective areas and shit-talking over the coffee percolators in the cafeteria segment. Today, the place was empty save for Kaid, Mikosh, and the moderate fog of dust that always floated in from the harvesting rows. It hung in conical yellow clouds below every overhead light, making the assignment deck look like the universe's worst dance club. Normally, the desk would be manned by a few dozen of the administration staff, typically young college grads training to work in the accounting sectors upstairs. Upstairs being any and all places too high up the hub elevators for scrubs like Mikosh to visit. He'd be down here on the assignment deck until he died or found an easier job off station that somehow also paid better. As a matter of course, he preferred to fail upwards whenever possible, though he usually only ever managed to succeed sideways, picking up a new title, new responsibilities, and no additional money. Rows 2, 4, and 18, Kaid said when the duty admin turned on her screen and smiled at them. She was probably 22 
blue-eyed and sporting skin as orange as a tangerine, a keratin filia that meant she grew up on a defunct Class II station. She cleared her throat at Kaid's impatience, but said nothing, tapping out their assignments in quick succession. A second later, two plastic cards popped out of the terminal. Kaid took his first. Two and four, he muttered, giving the woman a look. Thanks. Mikosh looked at his own card, confirming he only had to work row 18. Normally, Kaid got the cushier assignment, being his superior by several years, but not today. Row 18, Mikosh confirmed. He looked at the girl on the other side of the monitor. Even if she was 25, she was still 10 years younger than him. A sad thought he didn't mean to have, but that came anyway. He smiled and thanked her, really meaning it, unlike Kaid. The woman from admin, Valona, he'd learned her name was, gave them the standard safety briefing and the daily company update. Daily was a generous term. The station revolution time on this assignment was something like 75 hours. According to Valona, Blackwell Corporation stocks were doing fan-fucking-tastic, and it was just a matter of time before everybody finally got those cost-of-living adjustments they'd been hinting at since before Mikosh had been hired. Fat fucking chance, Kaid said as they left assignment for outfitting. I'll be dead as a doornail before they finally pay me what I'm worth. He gave Mikosh a look. They'd have to dock you three rotations to get your pay down to what you deserve. Mikosh glared at him, hopping awkwardly on one foot to pull his boots on. Is that why you've been pocketing lumps of catalyst? Mikosh asked. Kaid froze for just a moment, the top locking strap of his boot still in his hand. Then he continued dressing as though nothing had ever happened. I don't know what you're talking about, Kaid said. And maybe you don't either. He walked past Mikosh and got into the transport car, leaving without another word. Mikosh finished dressing in silence. Mikosh's transport, an orange and tan box shooting along one of the twenty or so magnetic tracks encircling the station's hub elevator, had a bad habit of rattling. He felt like he had to hold the cupped plastic seat under his legs and stare at the ground to keep from getting sick. Other workers, more valuable workers, might use the larger, multi-track units that glided like melting butter. Mikosh got to ride in transport human number 23, which felt like going down the side of a mountain sliding on a single, broken roller skate. Worker Mikosh? His intercom blurted. He found the transmit button by slapping against the thin wall of the carrier until he heard a click. Valona's face flitted up onto the screen opposite him. He smiled, though she wouldn't be able to see his face through the heavy, double-barreled respirator covering his mouth and nose. It took a few stiff nods for her to see he was listening to her. She smiled and looked down at a sheaf of paper in her hands. I've already appraised work a kite of this, but it seems the network-wide intercom is disabled during these skeleton shifts. She started, flipping to wherever she needed to be in the stack of papers. Okay, it seems that Sol Azul 22, the local star, has begun pulsing at irregular intervals. Station X-11 noticed and announced the phenomena about 20 minutes ago, picking off stations X-12 and X-15 to relay the message to us. Mikosh looked out at Sol Azul 22, 
the radiant blue dwarf around which this mining expedition revolved. The thing was several millions of miles away, but still loomed outside the bay windows like a great, pale eye. He'd seen dozens of stars up close in his lifetime, but this one made him and most everybody else uncomfortable. A byproduct of the stellar body's odd light emissions was the operative rumor around the station. In all honesty, he felt like it was looking at him sometimes. Administration has been informed of the phenomena and preliminary calculations suggest this pulse will be an invaluable source of growth radiation, Felona continued. Mikosh turned back to her and saw her eyes steadily tracking the words on the page as she read. Thus, it's imperative that the skeleton crews finish their work on the double, as the bay windows will be reducing to zero tinting for several seconds to maximize absorption. Additionally, there is an increased possibility of asteroid movement toward the station. Solar winds are expected to reach velocities sufficient to breach magnetic shielding, though catastrophic impacts are, are unlikely. Valona took a breath. Oh my. She looked up at Mikosh. They just added that, she said. I'll have to rebrief Worker Kite. She scanned the paper again and then set it down. That's it for the briefing, Worker Mikosh. Good luck out there and don't forget to keep track of shelter points in case of impact. Do you have any questions? Mikosh shook his head. The asteroid impact news was a little unsettling, but hardly rare. If anything, he just wished he'd had time to pack additional protective equipment. Mikosh rode the rest of the way in relative silence, eventually growing accustomed to the transport's incessant rattling. In just under an hour, he had swooped out to the far end of the station's central ring, where row 18 curved up to a narrow point in the distance. The point was, of course, an optical illusion caused by being so damn far away. Five kilometers, in fact. At two kilometers, the rows split off from each other, forming what an outside observer might think looked like a great, glittering metal flower adrift in space. The administration, transport, housing, and other general sectors were spaced out along the central hub, in the center of the bloom. A sort of pistol, to overextend the metaphor and all along the rows thick, endless fields of formless gray fluff. Mikosh jumped down off the transport and swiped his work card over the locker at the end of the platform. The equipment was universal and would be returned at the end of the shift, a pack and the requisite tools to do his job. He opened the metal and canvas bag and shifted through the contents, checking boxes on the machine as he ensured everything was in place. Radiation meters large and small field to check for pre-exposure rocks in the rows, extractors, emergency cocoons for three, collection bags for any odd samples, analog communications equipment, flares, everything was in place. He hit the final check and jumped on the utility sled that would take him out into the center of the row, equipping the large field radiation meter and scanning the fluff. This was the part and parcel of his occupation with Blackwell Energy Management, a subsidiary of the Blackwell Corporation. The gray fluff, catalyst, would absorb tremendous amounts of radiation from the solar pulses and crystallize into novel materials. Those would be collected and refined by more qualified people than Mikosh, using machines he could barely understand. 
His only purpose was to ride the sled and check for pre-exposure crystallization in the rows and collect whatever had started growing so it wouldn't ruin the entire harvest. Any idiot could do it, which is why Mikosh had the job. But most idiots were too smart to ride around hip-deep in phenomenal astral radiation catalyst for little more than a manager at a Cosmo Burger, so he also had job security. So long as he wasn't caught stealing the catalyst, like Kaid was bound to be eventually, nobody got away with it. He'd have the job until he died. The large field radiation meter pinged and he homed in on the location of the wad of pre-exposure flickering green on the screen. He worked the controls on the sled, slowing to a near stop as he tried to get close enough to the anomaly that he wouldn't have to spend too much time on his feet. Eventually, the large field meter overloaded and he had to pull out the small field. He was close. Mikosh stopped the sled and kicked down the metal folding ladder, taking his time getting down into the row itself. The catalyst was about knee-deep, and kicked up fine particles of dust that occluded his goggles and tinged his uniform gray. Without his respirator on, even those tiniest motes could cause symptoms ranging from paralytic pneumonia and blindness to delirium and hallucinations. Catalyst exposure varied from person to person and even from star to star. He'd heard some stellar bodies turn to the catalyst carcinogenic or mutagenic, and even rumors that it could cure baldness. People who lived off station were willing to pay a pretty price for a decent dose of Catalyst. They'd take it like any other drug and fuck it if they ended up with a third lung growing out of their neck, which was why Kaid was risking his job and up to ten years in prison smuggling it off station. None of that was Mikosh's business, though. He thought as he pawed through the dust with the long steel arm of the extractor. He preferred not to bother with up-jumping and cons and reporting on fellow workers to get ahead. No. He liked late nights playing video games and takeout and porno. The occasional prostitute. Everything else was a giant pain in the ass or a heartbreak waiting to happen. He found the gently glowing lump of blue crystal in a pack of catalysts just a few meters away from his sled, grabbing at it cautiously with the extractor and then dumping it unceremoniously into the waste bag when he determined it to be inert. If it weren't, it would destabilize the second it touched the metal and pop like a balloon, eating away the last foot or so of steel. If it were his hand that touched it, then the hand and the arm would go instead. But these crystals were, for whatever reason, inert, so he just had to pick them out of the pile and tuck them into the plastic disposal bags. Nothing to it. He wandered through the row, following signal after signal on the radiation meter and picking out what crystals he found. The sled followed him along the track, synced to keep up with the transmitter welded into the plastic of his rebreather. Half a dozen bags hung from it by the end of the first hour of work, twice that many by lunchtime three hours after that. The rows weren't badly irradiated, it seemed, so he'd probably have an easy day ahead of him. Mikosh pushed himself onto the platform and pressed the call button for the disposal sled. He was nearly half the distance to the far wall of the station now, and it took a few minutes before he could feel the waste carrier vibrating against the magnetic carry rail. It arrived and he hopped down into the bucket, pulling a plastic sheet over the top of it and removing his rebreather to eat lunch. Steam from the instant ramen left beads of condensation on the plastic. He ate quietly, 
listening to the little sounds of the space station, the hums and clicks, and the occasional deep, almost inaudible vibration of the greater support structure adjusting as it heated and cooled during rotation. In the rows, the dense clouds of catalyst filling the seedbeds devoured any errant sound. He'd gotten somewhat used to the unnatural quiet in the last few years, but it had always unnerved him. It was too deep, almost. Substantial. He would work himself into a trance, removing crystals and refilling the beds and then pause for a breather, only to notice the hollow depths of the silence around him. There would be nothing but his breath and the steady thrum of his pulse in his temple. He'd learned to make a sort of fort out of the disposal sleds watching a co-worker do the same thing in his first year of rotations. Inside the metal and plastic sled, his every movement carried an echo. His boots scraped against the floor when he adjusted his position. He could hear his clothing shifting and settling while he worked his way through whatever he'd brought to eat. Even this tiny bit of noise was almost like music to him. And all his life before taking this job, He'd never suspected he'd ever need a daily break from silence. He wondered if stoic, criminally-minded Kaid took breaks in the disposal sled and figured the man probably didn't. Despite his inclinations, Kaid was one of the most effective workers on station. He probably didn't even take breaks, which maybe was the reason he'd been getting away with the catalyst trafficking for so long. Mikosh realized he couldn't hear, all of a sudden feeling a dense pressure in his chest followed by a crunch louder than anything he had ever heard in his life. His mind pictured somebody dropping a cube of hard metal into a bin full of old beer bottles. It was sudden and incredible, a sound so harsh he felt it in his teeth. He thought it was his teeth, at least for a moment. The sheer force of the noise was so incredible his mind momentarily lost connection with itself. It was almost like going blind. Then he was flying, floating really, up out of the plastic bucket of the disposal sled and into the air. For a moment he was floating in perfect zero gravity, at least that's what it felt like, but he knew that wasn't the case. Not knew, really. Understood. The most primal rear parts of his brain understood he'd been thrown into the air. There had been another sound immediately after the crunch. Something like a thump that had rolled through the complicated network of steel plating and supports that made up the rows to toss Mikosh into the air like a doll. An impact so immense it had caused the supple steel to roll like an ocean in a storm. Mikosh's cup of ramen floated into the space just in front of his face, the remaining noodles writhing like confused worms. Beneath him, Catalyst had floated out of the seedbeds in long, perfect lines. Ahead of him, a great orange flower was blooming in the distance. He could see for miles at this height, and as the front ends of his brain re-engaged, he realized he was looking at a cloud of catalyst blowing away from a heavy impact. Above this swirling, growing ball of dust, a great, flat shadow was flying over the bay windows. A sealant curtain, unfurling to cover a hole something had punched into the station. Mikosh's stomach lurched as he reached the height of his arc. The cloud of orange was growing faster than his mind could process. He could see veins of blue lightning tearing through the excited particles along its surface as the gray dust catalyzed the radiation from the blue local star. 
He saw his respirator floating just within arm's reach as the gray fluff on the ground shot up past him. His fingers brushed it and caught in the elastic headband. Then the great ball of dust from the impact hit him full in the face, and he was soaring backward through the air, fighting against the blinding maelstrom to pull down his mask. Dust thickened on his teeth. He felt the plastic rim of the mask settle around his mouth over dirty skin. A wave of panic shot through him as he realized just how much he might have breathed in. But then his body struck something flat and hard and bounced and twirled madly through the air, and everything went dark. He came to while coughing, breathing in rough, haggard, and uneven intervals, but breathing all the same. He'd been conscious, though, dazed for some time, mindful enough at least to pull himself to his knees and begin his mass-clearing drill. He was supposed to be exhaling all the air in his lungs to clear the inside of the mask of pollutants, which coughing did quite effectively, but he was having a hard time breathing in the air he needed to stay conscious through the rebreather's tight filtration mechanism. His eyes watered badly. He was basically blind and choking to death on the small, panicked breaths he could manage. Calm down, you fucking idiot, Mikosh told himself. Calm the fuck down. He coughed out a full lungful and held the exhale for a single, impossible second. You're not dead, so you're breathing. Stop freaking the fuck out. He inhaled, long and steady. He'd gotten halfway through the breath when he started coughing again, though not so wildly out of control as a second ago. Pain started to leak in through the panic of suffocation, a steady bleed up through the numbness. His work suit had hardened to near immobility in places. He could tell one of his ankles, his right ankle, was completely frozen in place. The same was true of the better part of his left arm, which hung at an odd, straight angle down from his shoulder. The coughing had unlocked his hips and upper legs, as well as most of his torso. If the emergency stiffening had relaxed that much, then at least five minutes or so had passed since he'd skipped across the rows like a stone. Mikosh squinted into the dust around him. His goggles had been ripped off his head at some point before he came to. He could see nothing but the steady wave and ripple of the settling dust cloud. Something slipped in his mind, and he saw reality tearing slightly in the dust. It was a great white rip, like a door that split and widened and grew, and then disappeared. He tried to wipe his eyes, but only managed to smear sweat-soaked grime across his face. He knelt down, hissing when the locked-up ankle screamed under his weight. Barely able to breathe anyway, he held his breath and worked his hand around his ankle until he found the little node that would keep it fully locked and braced once depressed and pressed it. He yelped when he felt the crush of the support material inflate fully against his ankle. It hurt, but a hell of a lot less than when he'd put his weight on the thing. Mikosh slapped around at the catalyst, hoping to God he wouldn't accidentally hit a non-inert crystal buried in the fluff. There was absolutely no noise as he did this. With the amount of dust in the air, the row was even more silent than normal. Eventually, he hit the low steel wall of the seedbed separator and shifted to crouch down alongside it. He tried to make some sense of where he was in the thick dust and found the hazy blue disk of the local star in the fuzz of the cloud. 
Mikosh may as well have been adrift in the cosmos himself, floating loose in an errant cloud of hydrogen crystals that never managed to collapse into the millennial furnace, now spilling its light through the dust. There was no sense of the physical world around him. There was the ground, but that was merely a fixation point, a meaningless spot devoid of any context inside the greater universe. But he knew that if he turned his back on the blue dwarf, he could find his way to the center of the station. When he did turn, he saw his own shadow suspended in the moats. He began to walk, feeling the same crawling sensation as when he'd seen the white tear in the fabric of reality. That impossible thing. He ran his fingers over the minuscule air cartridge screwed in near the mouth of the rebreather, wondering how much oxygen he had left. Wondering if he'd be one of those statistics they talked about during orientation. One of those immortal examples of poor preparation and failure to follow safety standards. He could actually see them talking about him. That fucking idiot. They found him wandering around naked by the bay windows, whispering to the glass. Who the fuck takes their rebreather off? I'm not going to take my rebreather off, Mikosh told them. The two new workers were standing in a hallway up near the administration deck, where all the debriefings were done, casually leaning against a wall and sipping coffee. One of them looked at Mikosh and shook his head. Who the fuck are you talking to? He asked. Mikosh stopped walking for a second, the fingers inside his right glove tensing and untensing. He could hear nothing but his own breathing in the mask. He swallowed it, and the noise was like a sink draining. He started coughing and the force of it brought him to his knees. The floor of the administration hallway was superimposed over the thick covering of Catalyst, but it faded as he watched. He could hear a slight buzzing now in his left ear. He brought his hand up to the side of his head and realized he was touching his own hair. He'd put down his hood, which served as a helmet when the hardening factor kicked in, during his short lunch. He'd flown through the air without a scrap of protection on his head. It was an absolute fucking miracle he hadn't been brained to death by a wall during the mad, rolling flight through the air. The noise came from the earpiece set into the rebreather. The sides of the mask were long flanges that came up alongside the ears before splitting into the elastic bands that actually held the thing in place. The buzzing was a woman's voice, so faint he could barely hear it. Valona. He pawed at the controls on the side of the mask until he could hear her fully. Worker Mikosh, this is administration, she said. Her voice was haggard and dull, worried. She'd been at this for a while. Please respond, if you can hear me. I can hear you, administration, Mikosh said between coughs. The woman sighed with relief. She sounded on the verge of crying. The channel to his earpiece remained open once somebody from administration activated the connection. Mikosh realized she might have been listening to him mutter to himself like a crazy person for a good several minutes now. Oh, thank God, she said with a sigh. Are you okay? Not really, Mikosh replied, barely able to keep the pain out of his voice. Something happened down here. I think... I don't, I don't know what I think, 
there was an explosion, maybe even a hole in one of the bay windows. He stopped talking to cough, a slight clearing of the throat that ended with him curled over his knees and struggling to breathe. I was thrown in my rebreather. It came loose. I think I inhaled some catalyst. He paused. Her breathing was steady on the other end of the line, worried. It laid a counterbeat to his own labored breaths. I'm seeing things. Valona cursed under her breath. He could almost see her holding the microphone away from her face and looking around the office as she tried to think of something to say. Then he could see her, blue eyes worriedly searching the muted patterns of her prefabricated desktop. She wore the standard black and white suit of the administrative rank and file, only the red shirt cuffs on her wrists, the color everybody on their shift wore somewhere on their person, broke up the monotony of drab colors. She took a breath and scanned the hundreds of other desks in the office, all empty, where she might have been able to ask for help if this shift wasn't so bare bones. Mikosh, she said, but her tone didn't match her face. Mikosh, she repeated, and he snapped out of it. She'd been talking to him, trying to get his attention for a while now, he knew. Her voice sounded mildly impatient, but it carried an edge of deep concern, like she was speaking to a terminal cancer patient, or a deranged person. Sorry, Mikosh said. I'm just... Go on. Discordant thoughts in his mind popped back into place, resetting his history from front to back until he had the full picture. It had been roughly ten minutes since the incident, as Valona had taken to calling whatever it was that had happened. He'd managed to continue the conversation while simultaneously having a vivid hallucination of her sitting in the office. The hallucination felt real to him, too more so than the conversation he'd actually had. Those defragmented and reset memories had a watery quality to them, almost like their existence was the suggestion of an untrustworthy stranger. But the more he held on to them, the more real they seemed. I need you to repeat that, Mikosh, Valona said. He tripped out again, but he heard his mouth saying the things she wanted to hear. It felt like he was hearing them for the first time as well. I need to head to row two to check on Kaid, Mikosh said, to himself as much as to Valona. He started to envision himself, his internal self, walking alongside him through the fluff. This version of him didn't touch the waking world. The dust in the air passed through him in an orange haze. His eyes met Mikosh's. You're going to check on Kaid and get him to medical with you if possible, the man said. He wasn't really Mikosh, Mikosh realized. This man was trimmer around the middle and had all of his hair, every last bit. And though he was a redhead, his hair wasn't the pale sort of orange that plagued Mikosh's scalp. His hair was like curling ringlets of liquid fire, dark red, almost like blood. You need to hit the closest emergency eyewash before you get into the transport, the man said, pointing ahead down the line. Mikosh followed his finger to where he was pointing. He could almost see a rising black space in front of him demarcating the edge of the row, the place where the steel dipped down about three meters from the massive, 
disc-shaped platform around the central hub. The light from the local star penetrated the cloud enough here to catch in the scratches and whorls worn and machined into the steel. Pulling himself out of the seedbed was harder than he expected. His left arm, now appreciably numb, still hadn't unlocked. If he had to guess, it was broken, and the suit wouldn't unlock the makeshift splint until he was in the medical bay. That meant he had to pull himself up the access ladder one-handed until he could finally roll out of the row and onto the central hub decking. He was able to rest for only a moment until a terrible cough built in his chest. It started low, rising quickly to a crescendo that left him red-faced and breathless, curled over his knees and wheezing. He tried to stop, but couldn't. He could even hear Valona in his ear, trying to tell him to just slow down and breathe. Mikosh pulled himself to his feet and crawled for the eyewash station he knew was somewhere near the restroom facilities spread throughout the work decks by the rows. Squinting through the thick, painful covering of dust, he managed to find the orange lines and arrows showing him the way to the station. He could taste the dust still clinging to his teeth. It was like a mud he didn't dare swallow. Valona was all but yelling something he couldn't hear into his earpiece when he reached the station. He ripped off the rebreather and fell into the booth, slapping the activation paddles and letting gallons of fresh, filtered water spray into his open eyes. Then he pulled the full chemical wash handle and felt the waterfall crash of fresh water falling over his head and shoulders. The booth was closed off from the rows, and though it wasn't airtight, the water effectively knocked all the dust out of the air. Mikosh took in a great, long breath that tasted sweeter than honey. Then he collapsed to his knees and coughed little congealed chunks of snot and dust onto the ground. He coughed until his face tingled, and he felt on the verge of vomiting. You need to put your rebreather on, Mikosh, Valona said in his ear. He nodded and agreed, trying to push himself to his feet and failing. The bottom of the booth was a steel grating covered in little nubs for traction. Terribly uncomfortable but very effective for draining a swimming pool's worth of water. Mikosh ran his finger over the divisions between the holes and tried to catch his breath. Something passed in front of the booth and he froze. The feeling was sudden and electric, primal. Mikosh was painfully aware of how much louder the booth was than the rose outside. Despite the eyewash, he was still nearly blind, but he could make out the writhing regular shadows superimposed on the translucent door of the booth. He wiped his eyes twice, quickly, squinting to see what it was. Don't move, Mikosh, Valona said. I don't know what you're looking at, but you shouldn't move. Just stay still. I'm not fucking moving, Mikosh said. The shape outside the booth wavered like four people walking in unison blending into a lone silhouette with arms that moved like slow fire. Don't talk either, Valona said. Stay absolutely quiet. Mikosh nodded and said nothing, watching the shape speed up and then slip out of sight. It faded, really. The shadows disintegrating into the pale blue light of the local star. For not the first time, Mikosh felt like that great burning thing was an eye, 
an eye focused on him. I think it's gone, Mikar said, tilting his ear in wait for Valona's reply, for her to give him the okay to leave the stall. The man with the blood-red hair, the better version of Mikosh, looked down at him from the corner of the booth. Who are you talking to? he asked. Mikosh touched his face and realized he wasn't wearing the rebreather anymore. Valona couldn't be talking to him. She did anyway. Just put the rebreather back on, okay? She said. Then you can sort things out. Mikosh took a breath and then slowly opened the stall door. Almost immediately, unsettled dust from the catalyst blown up by the explosion filled the space. By the time he had the rebreather settled on his face again, his eyes were already starting to burn. He didn't even bother trying to wipe them. They were better than they had been in the first place. And even if he tried, his wet skin and uniform had acquired a thick, gray coating of catalyst. If he fell into a seedbed right then, they'd never find him. He'd be scorched into non-existence by the bay windows when they dropped the tinting, reducing him to, at best, a microscopic carbon imperfection in one of the crystals the irradiating process would produce. He looked to the great blue eye, the local star, and shivered thinking of how it would look growing brighter and brighter as the tinting dropped. Beneath that odd, pale sun, the dust had fallen to a reasonable level over the seedbeds, though the content in the air was still far above safe levels. The thickest cloud lay just a few meters over the lowest part of the rose, creating an orange-brown fog that cut off just below his knees. This low-laying mist swirled and bucked when he walked through it like water at low tide. In the distance, almost three kilometers away into the bed he'd been tending when the day had gone completely tits up, something shifted under the fog. He tried to get a better view of the now rippling cloud and saw the faint glint of his sled beside the row divider. Clean, shining metal showed beside that as well, where the disposal sled's bucket had been ripped sheer off the magnetic railing couplings. Again, something moved out in that sea of low, gray fog and it caused Mikosh to pause. He raised a finger to his ear and tapped twice, thinking before asking Valona a question he thought might make him sound crazy. Hey, Valona. He started. The fog had stilled, but some instinctual, internal thing made him sure he could see errant motion amongst the gently rolling clouds of dust. He kept an eye on that area watching the shadows dance between the cresting waves of fog. Maybe something was whipping around in there. And then again, maybe it was just the wind. Yes? she asked. Her voice echoed, both her and the real her talking to Mikosh at the same time. Overlapping. He clenched his eyes shut, risking the loss of sight to make himself focus. Not that it could really help much. Is there... Any chance Kaite came to check on me in row 23? Mikosh asked. There was a long silence. No. It's not possible, Valona said. It could happen, but it's very unlikely, Valona said. Why do you ask? Valona asked. What do you see? Valona asked. Or, I guess, what makes you ask that? 
Mikosh pressed his hands against his head in frustration. Despite himself, he began to cough. It wasn't so bad this time, the coughing, but it still doubled him over. I thought I saw something moving out by my sled, Mikosh said, a couple kilometers out, where I was when the explosion or whatever happened. A couple kilometers? Valona repeated. The two voices synced slowly and then merged into one. The discordancy faded and Mikosh sighed with relief. Maybe she thought it was just relief from the coughing. She didn't comment on it. That's extremely far in that dust cloud, Mikosh. He heard her fiddling with something. Camera controls. I have the infrared, everything up where you are, and I can barely see you, she continued. The overseer's cameras can pick up anything down there during normal work hours, but this dust has fucked everything sideways. He heard her pause for a second when she realized she'd cursed on official company comms. Everything was recorded for quality assurance, after all. Anyway, Mikosh, I can't see anything moving down there but you, and only barely and only because I know where you are, she said. Are you sure, really sure, that you can even see that far right now? I can see your sled and there's nothing moving over there that I can see from up here. And, as far as I know, Kaid is still in the vicinity of row three. He... She took a long breath, considering how to phrase whatever she was trying to say. His rebreather isn't functioning as a telecoms device right now, she eventually said. I can't get any readings off it as of a few minutes after the explosion. Another long pause. Mikosh, God damn it, Mikosh, you and I are probably alone on the station right now if Kaid's dead. Or crazy and wandering around lost in the rose. What? Mikosh asked. The man with the blood-red hair stepped into view and waved his hand in front of Mikosh's face, then pointed at a spot halfway between the sled and where they, where Mikosh alone, stood on the central hub deck. Mikosh stifled a cough and watched as something dark broke the surface of the dust cloud and then vanished, leaving a pool of eddying, shifting fog in its wake. What was that, you think? The better Mikosh asked. Mikosh started walking quickly for the transport he'd ridden out to row 18. He found it right where he left it, though it looked somehow more sinister resting in the darkness under a lift shed with the dusty rays of the blue star shining on it. Valona had kept talking the entire time, though he could barely process what she'd said. The entire station has been evacuated already, she said. Whatever caused that explosion hit the row three bay window so hard it completely ruined its functionality. That screen is for the rare micrometeorite that punches through the magnetic atmosphere around the station, but the hole that object left is about eight meters in diameter. She cursed. That polymer is rated for weapons-grade barrages. Admin 1 thinks the stellar pulse we were going to capture later today pre-fired or something. They don't know. Nobody knows. So, what? Everybody's leaving? Mikosh asked. 
strapping himself into the transport. Better Mikosh stepped onto the side of the single-person conveyance and nodded appreciatively at Mikosh's efforts to secure himself. Then he pointed down the line toward row three. Mikosh gave a last look at the unfinished row where he'd been blown loose like a daisy in a rainstorm. Something pale and white flickered up out of the dust. Better Mikosh chuckled. I'm sure if you want to see it in full, you can just wait a few more minutes. He whispered to Mikosh. Mikosh hit the accelerator and the transport rattled out of the station, pushing him into the seat as it rose to near full velocity. No, Mikosh, Valona said. Everybody is gone. Everybody but you, me, and possibly Kaid. There's a chance that the pulse will rip the harvesting deck to shreds when it hits. That seal isn't rated for that sort of barrage. And there's the chance the local star will throw something larger into us as well. She sighed. I didn't want you to panic while you were blind and suffocating out there in the rows, Mikosh, but this is fairly serious, she said. There are enough lightboats on station for six times the amount of people we jettisoned after that impact. But those are all getting picked up by rescue vehicles in the next hour or so. They might always come back for us, sure, but I'd rather be on them and gone than floating in space with no shielding during an asteroid storm. Me too. Better Mikosh whispered in Mikosh's ear. If you can't find Kaid, she added in a low voice, then you can't find him. If you did see something out there by that sled, you don't have the time to go inspect it. And you certainly don't have the time to drag a half-insane man back to the central lift on a single-person transport. You hadn't even thought of that, huh? Better Mikosh asked. He hadn't. Mikosh lost his mind completely as they passed through one of the final lift shelters before arriving at row three. Lift shelters were temporary barriers that rose from the work decks near the central column so nobody accidentally strayed in front of a magnetic rail car shuttling along at 100 kilometers per hour. They slipped out of recesses in the decking, curving at light angles to hang over the tracks. The sides of them were painted in brilliant orange and white stripes. When Mikosh passed this last set of rising barriers, his pupils widened until nothing was left of his irises. His mind painted pictures for him to make sense of the universe he could see, but nothing that could ground him back into reality. He was falling face first through a copse of trees from a mountain on some planet from humanity's remote past. He was sitting in the musty guts of a wooden boxcar, riding the rails on an ancient, primitive train. He had traveled beyond space and time to the final moments of this universe, where a great dark thing lay rotting in the light of the last dying star. Then he was himself again, but drained. He slumped back in the seat of the transport, head rattling painfully against the plastic rear wall. He made an accounting of himself and sat up, coughing into his fist. That explains why people are buying this shit he said after a while. Actually, he just thought it. Better be Kosh said it from where he stood a few feet away on the row three work deck. He pointed to the ground and said, Look at this. Something tacky and black had been smeared across the work deck, clumping and clodding around the little diamond grip plates and catching the settling dust. 
Mikosh coughed and bent over the stain, reaching down to dab his fingers into it. He hoped it was hydraulic fluid, but of course it wasn't. Despite being nearly dry and gummy with dust, the coppery stink of blood still filled the air. Mikosh looked around at the window behind him. Aside from the great black sheet of metal covering the bay window, the area looked no worse for wear than the rest of the rows. There was a sort of cup-shaped depression in the center of the row, but the catalyst had fallen and covered whatever damage might lay beneath. He turned his attention back to the stain. It was impossibly wide, he thought. Too wide and too oddly shaped to have come from a human being. If, for some insane reason, he were to lay down on the dun-colored mess, he wouldn't be able to reach beyond any two sides of it with his fingers all the way outstretched. The stain was also shaped like a fan, and almost perfectly uniform in its covering of the deck. Mikosh looked closer and saw a much thinner trail leading back into the rows. He looked from the stain to the row and back again, wondering what to do and thinking of the odd fluttering shape he'd thought he'd seen out there in the dust. Then Better Mikosh tapped him on the shoulder and pointed at the ground by their feet. Better Mikosh spit onto the platform, a giant, disgusting glob of blackened phlegm much the same as Mikosh had been coughing up in the eyewash station. Mikosh watched him smash his foot down onto the gob, then slide his foot back and forth over the ground, scraping the liquid from side to side. Then he swept his foot straight back toward the seed beds. The shape the spit had left on the deck was almost exactly the same as the greater blood stain beside it. Yes, I suppose so, Mikosh said under his breath, wiping his mouth and fitting his mask back into place. He looked at his hand and saw the black smudging his glove. Better Mikosh had disappeared. Mikosh looked at the bottom of his foot and saw it was wet from where he'd swiped it back and forth over the decking. Medical. Perhaps he made it to medical. From where he was standing, it was a short drive back to the assignment desk and the medical bay beside it. During normal operations, medical would be staffed with a doctor and at least a couple nurses, standing by to assist in case of an accident. This was the skeleton shift, of course, so medical would be empty, but the automated health systems would be functional. If Kaid was injured, he probably went to medical for treatment. Mikosh gave the ugly smear on the work deck one last look and then left, ignoring the nagging sensation of being followed. The transport took Mikosh to the assignment deck, and he almost collapsed when he saw Kaid's transport docked in the station. He jogged over to it, feeling his pulse thump in his head as he did so. The transport was empty save for a faint, roughly hand-shaped smear of blood on the sidewall. Mikosh ran a finger over it and saw it was dry as paint. A few curlicues of fluff had dried in place on it. He hobbled toward medical as quickly as possible, hailing Valona on the transmitter embedded in his rebreather. Hey, he said. Uh, I think Kaede is badly injured, but he might be walking around. I'm heading for medical to check on him. Okay, Valona said. Her voice echoed at him, both her and another her talking at the same time. 
He wondered absentmindedly if the other her had the same blue eyes. Blue eyes like the great blue eye hanging in space outside the station. The pale blue star whose light he could see bathing all of the station interior, save where the black sheet covered the window over row three. What did you find that makes you think he's still alive? Blood, Mikosh said. There was a lot of it near where Kite had been working, but up on the work deck. And it was, I, I don't know, smeared around. Smeared? Valona asked. Yeah, Mikosh said. Also his transports back at the assignment deck. That makes me think he tried to get to medical. There's blood on that too. His transports back at assignment? Valona asked. He could hear her fiddling around with something at her desk. Are you sure? My readout up here says his transport is still at row two. Mikosh stopped and looked back at the transports all tucked in next to each other in station. From this distance, he couldn't tell for sure that the transport he'd thought he'd seen was there. But he was sure he'd seen it. Then again, he was sure he'd seen a lot of things. Yeah, he said, turning and heading for medical. I'm sure. Okay. Valona said. He could tell from her voice that she was taking it on faith that he wasn't just seeing things. The impact could have damaged the transport or the track's feedback system somehow. She paused. Anything's possible. Yeah, Mikosh said. I guess so. The lights in medical, like in the rest of the station, were automatic and motion sensing. They flicked on in the entrance when he walked inside, fluttering to life and bathing the waiting room in light that seemed garishly yellow compared to the pale blue of the local star. The door snapped shut behind him and he heard the sound of the air scrubbers kicking on, a dull snap followed by a great rush of air. If a speck of dust remained in the place, he couldn't find it. The only mar on the antiseptic white of the waiting room was another of the almost hand-shaped bloodstains on the wall beside the door to the exam rooms. And here, the rust brown looked almost painted on, and possibly dark. Mikosh could see every little dip and dash where the fabric of a wet glove had smeared the doorframe. The door opened as he approached with a silent rush of air, the white steel and plastic slab flitting away into a recess built into the wall. The hallway led right and left, the sign arrows in front of him suggesting right was for doctors and the left was for all other personnel. He turned left and found another bloodstain, this one far smaller than the others, marring the wall where the hallway bent into another corridor. This stain glowed brilliant red for just a moment and then spread across the wall, filling the hallway with 10,000 squirming centipedes. The vision faded just as the crawling things started to work their way up Mikosh's feet. Despite himself, he could still feel imaginary bugs picking their way up his legs, getting stuck in his leg hair. He shuddered. The blood stain remained, though it was now dull and brown and unmoving. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. 
Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mikosh followed the corridor to a changing room beside what he knew was the auto doctor hangar. The auto docks were large steel and glass tubes that filled with suspension fluid. They could diagnose and treat a host of problems, but their primary use was to float workers with critical injuries so they could be taken off station to a more comprehensive hospital. Mikosh had been in one on a different station years back to get his appendix taken out a fairly simple procedure that had left him unconscious in suspension for about a day while he recuperated. He'd popped out of the thing with a fresh scar and ready to work like nothing had even happened. If Kaid was hurt, he would have known to come here for treatment. All Mikosh would have to do was pull the red emergency tab on the back of the machine to send it up to the escape pods automatically. He had to find which pod Kaid was in first, of course. But there were only 20 or so auto docks in the hangar and Kaid would be the only person in one. There was even a chance his pod had been jettisoned already. But sometimes you had to hit the emergency tab physically to get the things to work. At least according to the orientation videos Mikosh had watched about 30 million times. And you couldn't do it yourself. Mikosh found Kaid's uniform in the locker room and had to hold a hand over his mouth to keep from puking. It was the only thing left in the room that had any sort of color, and that color was bad. Brown and red stains colored every inch of the fabric, and the fabric itself was torn and ripped from wrist to toe. Mikosh thought of his own suit's hardening factor and wondered what kind of forces Kaid's body had been subjected to. He turned and found better Mikosh standing just inside the hangar entrance, his hand on the doorframe. Why is the light on already? He asked. Mikosh stepped past him and looked into the room. From where he was standing, 
He could see little more than the odd tubes and boxes that fed the rows of cylinders lining the two elevated mesh walkways. Each of the cylinders, the auto docks, were emblazoned with a number near the top. From where he stood, he could see the very tops of all of them save one, number 16, which was missing from the rows. It's because something is moving in here, better Mikosh whispered in Mikosh's ear, undeterred. Mikosh looked at him and the imaginary man pointed up at the ceiling. Both their eyes followed his finger up to where something was swirling in faint black patterns on the wall. A shadow. Mikosh turned in place to get a better look at it, not sure what he was seeing. It waved like seaweed in a current. A gentle swaying interrupted by the occasional flick of one of the tendrils left or right. It reminded him of an insect feeling its way along by its antenna. Without warning, he coughed, barely catching the noise in the crook of his arm. Better Mikosh glared at him. Are you kidding? He asked. The fronds of the shadow froze in place. Mikosh heard movement in the machinery at the center of the room. He peeked around the side of it to the rightmost walkway, which fed units 11 through 20. A naked human leg took an unsteady step onto the walkway. Mikosh swallowed. The skin color matched Kaid's, that same deep brown, but the proportions were all wrong. The thigh and calf were long and oddly bent. The foot, too, was exceptionally long and fitted with toes that gripped the mesh-like fingers. The hair on the leg waved and writhed like amoebic cilia. A hand came into view and Mikosh cursed under his breath. It wasn't human. It couldn't be. It was all, all wrong. He looked around in a panic and then made a mad dash for the closest pod on the side opposite where the thing was emerging. His mad dash amounted to little more than awkwardly tiptoeing the distance to the cylinder before gingerly opening the door and stepping inside. Better Mikosh stood just outside the closing door, giving Mikosh a worried look and holding a finger to his lips. Mikosh, what's going on? Valona asked. Did you find Kaid? I found uh, something, Mikosh said. I think I'm seeing things. He heard a magnetic snap and looked around to see the little display beside the door flickering to life. He felt warmth creeping up his ankles and saw the cylinder had started to fill. Oh shit. What? Valona asked, clearly worried. I just locked myself in an auto-doctor and now it's filling up, Mikosh said. A mouthpiece similar to his rebreather slid down from overhead and Mikosh looked down at the fluid quickly rising over his knees. Why? Valona asked, nearly shouted. I think something's wrong with Kaid. He looked weird, Mikosh said. I've, I've got to go. I need to put the other mask on. Damn it. Okay. Valona said, but listen, the absolute second you get out of there, you need to hightail it to the escape pods. I don't worry about how much time you have left. Just assume it's basically none. Okay. If you don't hear from me, it's because I've already left administration for the pods. I'll wait for you as long as I can, but Mikosh ripped his rebreather off and put the auto doctor mask in place. The water passed over his head and his eyes. The auto doctor's mask had a painfully awkward tube that pushed his tongue down against the bottom of his mouth.
and scratched the back of his throat. He could feel it pumping air in and out of his lungs as though the organs were just an afterthought. A voice piped up in his ear. Worker Mikosh, the autodoc said. He could barely see out of the cylinder. Little more than form and shadow, but something was moving outside the tank. Getting closer. Readings from your breath alone show an almost impossibly high concentration of catalyst contamination in your bloodstream, the autodoc said. Mikosh couldn't respond, as if it would make a difference. Imaging shows a great deal of corneal abrasions and catalyst particulate in your eyes. Processing. Are you experiencing hallucinations? Please nod your head. Mikosh nodded. The thing was just outside of the cylinder now, its odd body moving in ways that made Mikosh sick to think about. It seemed alien, but it could also just be the catalyst in his system. He thought of better Mikosh. A hallucination so solid that Mikosh thought perhaps he may have always existed. It was absurd. The shape outside his cylinder was still human enough to be Kaid. It was possible. Anything was possible. A mixture of atropine and antipsychotics should alleviate the worst symptoms of the catalyst exposure. The autodoc continued. But the particulate concentrations in your eyes and lungs need to be removed first. Please stand by for administration of a pre-surgery paralytic and anesthetic. Before Mikosh could protest, the machinery connected to his mouth hummed and filled his lungs with just what the autodoc said it would. He felt his chest go numb from the inside, a terrible sensation that made him want to claw open his own chest cavity. It itched, it burned, and the thing outside the cylinder was now standing just inches away so that Mikosh could make out the faintest outlines of human features in the face. There was an expression there. Was it concern? Was the face smiling? He couldn't tell. All he could think of was the hand he'd seen wrapping itself around the safety railing beside the autodoc's machinery bay. A thing nearly as long as the forearm it was connected to, with great divides along the carpals so that every finger met only at the wrist and each of those fingers flicked back and forth along double-hinged joints, curling backward, knuckle-first around the railing. There will be some discomfort, the autodoc said. Your lungs are being filled with oxygenated suspension liquid and pressurized to allow the surgical instrument's room to work. The sensation was immediate. Mikosh was dying. He was being forcibly drowned by this machine while the shadow outside the cylinder watched him die. He could feel his deadened muscles spasm lightly despite the paralytic, but that was it. He was trying to scream, to gag, to rip the thing out of his mouth and kick his way out of the cylinder, but he could do nothing. Then he could feel the surgical instruments in his mouth and windpipe. He could feel them moving into his lungs like living doll's hair scraping and flicking against every imperfection in his brachial tube. Then they were in his lungs, and he could feel nothing, but he knew they were in there. His mind showed him what they were doing, how they were tearing and ripping little slivers of flesh away from the lining of his lungs. He saw, truly deeply saw, blood pooling in the hollows of his air sacs. He saw the things burrowing deeper into his body pushing until they were scissoring through his flesh and into the suspension fluid in front of his face. 
Then he saw the doll's hair surgical instruments floating closer and closer to his eyes. They twitched and course-corrected with the same direct, insectile movements of the thing he'd seen outside the cylinder. He wanted to move his eyes, but they were too numb now, frozen in place. The little hairs began to brush against his cornea all but blinding him. But he could see the thing outside the glass, the shape of it distorted by the liquid. It pressed its face against the cylinder and he saw its eye flatten over the glass. It was broad and milky yellow, fat as the palm of his hand. It seemed distended from the skull that bore it, reaching out of the bone and flesh on a stalk like a snail's eye, or a crab's. Then it was gone, and so were the doll's hair surgical instruments. They flitted away like a dream. If Mikosh was capable of holding his breath, and he sure as shit would have been holding it through all of that, he would have exhaled in relief. As it was, he felt a series of pricks in his neck, and the sense of feeling returned to his body. The procedure is a success, the autodoc said, its voice anything but cheerful. All foreign bodies have been removed from worker Mikosh with a surety rating of 99.9%. This unit would like to remind worker Mikosh that surety ratings can never equal 100% due to the liability constraints of the Blackwell Corporation's automated diagnosis, observation, and correction system. Mikosh felt another prick in his neck. The world brightened instantly. The thing outside the glass was gone. The catalyst counter serum has been administered, the autodoc explained. Worker Mikosh should be advised that his catalyst intoxication has been reported to his superiors, and any relevant incident reports regarding the incurring incident should be filed to avoid penalties. Worker Mikosh's wages have been garnished at 72% to compensate the Blackwell Corporation for the medical treatment received, barring an accident forgiveness rebate. The cylinder drained, dumping Mikosh against the back wall. He ripped the mask off and expected to begin coughing immediately, but his lungs felt fine. For some reason, he almost felt cheated. The door of the cylinder popped open, but the autodoc kept talking. The catalyst counter serum is only meant to reduce the most drastic symptoms of intoxication and works at different rates depending on the physiology of the patient, it said. Please exercise caution for the next several hours and do not operate heavy equipment, power tools, or any non-automated conveyance until cleared by a supervisor. Something in the housing clicked. Thank you, it said, and have a nice day. Mikosh stumbled out of the cylinder and immediately looked around for whatever he'd seen, what he'd taken to calling the Kaid thing in his head. His eyes felt scalded clean. He had to squint to see in the artificial light, stumbling his way out of medical and strapping his rebreather back on as he did so. The suspension fluid evaporated quickly outside of the auto docks, leaving him dry but terribly cold. Valona, he said, hoping she could hear him. He pawed around in the reception desk in medical and found a pack of the cheap dust goggles issued to the non-work staff. His real goggles, lost in the rows and damned to be disintegrated by the local star when the radiation pulse hit, were heavy-duty and padded and comfortable. 
These cheap things fucking sucked, but it was better than getting more dust in his eyes. He strapped them on and stepped outside, feeling much better than he did when he'd woken up coughing a lung out in the rose just half an hour earlier. The rough plastic edges bit into the skin over his cheekbones. Bologna, he said again. She responded, but her voice was garbled, completely unintelligible. Maybe she was telling him to hurry up. Probably, yeah. He stopped just short of the assignment deck elevator, the one he'd taken down here to start the day just an hour ago. It seemed longer than that, but it wasn't the memory of the trip down that stopped him in place. Kaid was there, standing right in front of the elevator with his back to Mikosh. Mikosh saw the elevator lights were ticking down one by one as the platform itself got ready to arrive in station. It was coming all the way from admin, which meant there were several minutes left in the trip. Hello, Mikosh, Kaid said, not turning around. He wasn't wearing a rebreather, but he had put on his ruined work uniform. It hung from his body in tatters, badly stained and barely concealing any of his skin. The skin itself looked fine. So did his hands and feet, for that matter. He wasn't wearing shoes. I've wanted to speak with you. Uh, Okay, Mikosh said. Uh, where's your rebreather? Are you, uh, are you okay? I'm fine, Kaid said. You made a comment to me earlier that I wanted to confront you about. That's what I remember. You said something about the catalyst and it upset me. His head turned and Mikosh saw the man was looking down at his hand. You sound funny, Kaid, Mikosh said, looking around. There was nothing but the empty assignment deck and the closest rows, numbers 1 and 49. He could see something moving around in row 1. It was unmistakable. Something's not right here, better Mikosh said. I know something's not right, Mikosh responded trying to find better Mikosh. But the other blood-red-haired version of him wasn't there. He was surprised by how lonely it made him feel. Who are you talking to that's not me? Kaid asked. He started walking toward Mikosh without turning around. Mikosh looked down at his feet and saw they had shrunk to ball-ended stubs. Even as he watched... Kaid's tarsals and metatarsals pushed out of the gummy flesh and began click-clacking over the floor. The man's gait was made all the more awkward by the fact that his knees were still facing the complete wrong direction. Little wires of flesh crept out along all the exposed bones, followed by thicker cords of muscle and then an envelope of flesh. The finished feet looked like a clumsy impression of the real thing. Like if the only person you'd ever seen up close had been completely crushed before you got a good look at him, better Mikosh whispered, though he still wasn't anywhere to be seen. Kaid's knees snapped through their hinges so that he was almost walking the right way. The sound of the joints readjusting made Mikosh queasy. He took several steps back. I am upsetting you, Mikosh, Kaid said. One of his arms, still facing backward, clicked and popped and split up to the elbow, but not as much as you upset me. I remember needing that good connect so I could pay off some loans. Paying off loans is very important, Mikosh. Kaid reached for him. 
If I make you a silent person, you won't make trouble for me anymore, and neither of us will be upset. Mikosh turned and ran for the transport station, making a few dozen meters before he saw something rolling up and out of row one. Perhaps a hundred viscous yellow eyeballs dotted the appendage it threw up onto the platform. The arm itself was the size of a child's bed, if you cut it in half and stretched it out lengthwise. Mikosh skidded to a stop and turned to see Kaid had fallen over onto all fours. This is a clumsy way to move around, but I'm not doing it right, Kaid said, his neck turning at an impossible angle to give him a better view of Mikosh. The platform rumbled underfoot as whatever it was crawled out of the row. Mikosh took off running past Kaid, watching as the man's eyes, sockets and all, cracked the plane of his face to rest on Mikosh. They were dull, magnetic yellow. Mikosh didn't know what he was doing. He was just running. Panic suffused every part of him, more than he'd ever felt in his life. It was like electrical currents were pushing his muscles along, independent of what his waking mind wanted. He could hear the Kaid thing clumping along on all fours behind him. It spoke without being winded, despite moving at a full clip. Where are you going, Mikosh? It asked. I have a way to fix this that benefits both of us. Are you okay? Are you seeing things? Did you breathe in the catalyst? It was running alongside him now, the limbs propelling it along the deck looking only remotely human. The feet it had grown out of Kaid's hands looked like deer paws. This is really quite ridiculous, it said. It swiped Mikosh's foot out from underneath him just short of the edge of the seedbed and Mikosh took his second nasty tumble into the fluffy, gray catalyst. He disappeared beneath it, and everything was silent again. That deep, almost unfathomable quiet. He barely felt the thud of the thing jumping in along with him. Mikosh stayed low and crawled through the fluff, kicking up a cloud of dust overhead. The greater cloud from earlier had all but died down, though the orange fog still lingered at about hip height in the seedbeds. He figured he could duck around the thing if he stayed quiet and then head for the elevator. Deep blue light shined out at him through the catalyst and he froze. I do not need to see you to find you, Mikosh, the Kaid thing said. Something struck Mikosh violently from behind, and he had to make a series of clumsy pirouettes in order to not come into contact with the pre-radiation crystal. He'd thought it looked blue a second earlier, but he realized it was actually a fairly deep purple. Indigo, he thought, and then something hit him again and he screamed. The impact was like a whiplash that managed to cut through every bit of protection his suit offered. He turned to where the attack had come from and saw the Kaid thing standing in the fluff. He could see the flesh of its legs through the tattered work uniform. The thing's thighs looked tattered themselves, a series of springy ribbons haphazardly knitted together to keep it standing. The hands were splitting along the metacarpal lines as well, snapping back and forth over the worn hinge joints. I will finish this and then go be with the people, the Kaid thing said. It has been a long time and I am sick of being a lonely thing. It is lonely here. I hate it. It raised its arm over its head and brought it down like a whip over the arm Mikosh was shielding himself with. The pain was incredible. 
He felt the suit harden to the consistency of a steel cast, but there were still dents in it. He thought his arm might be broken. The Kaede thing wrapped the odd phalanges around Mikosh's forearm. This is a novel creation, it said. Extra skin, hard but pliant. Every time I meet the people again, they have new tools. The Kaid thing had started talking out of the base of its neck, the vertebrae parting to make way for a clumsy speech organ. Mikosh's head swam, from confusion as much as pain, as an entire face formed in the hair on the back of Kaid's head. The milky yellow eyes found him and blinked. I am beyond tools, it said clenching its fingers until Mikosh could feel the bones in his arm clicking and grinding against each other. They were about to shatter. It was like being in the clutch of a big jungle snake. He screamed and dug his free hand into the catalyst. The Kaid thing was watching the damage it was wreaking on Mikosh and not paying attention to the man himself until it was too late. What is this? Mikosh clenched his eyes shut and screamed and shoveled a handful of the catalyst and egg-sized pre-radiation crystal into the Kaid thing's face. It put its hand up at the last second, for what little good it did the thing. The crystal reacted instantly, creating a splitting white void that turned the tinting in Mikosh's cheap goggles flat black. Still, he could see the reaction point growing, could feel the gentle drag as it ate its way into existence. Mikosh had pulled his hand back at the last second, and the slow-burning reaction ate the wad of catalyst in his palm instead of the palm itself. The thing wasn't so lucky. The reaction point had caught its physical mass at that exact area in space. It released Kaid's arm and inspected the white light eating away its body with an expression Mikosh couldn't for the life of him understand but its body language suggested little more than a passive fascination with what was happening. This is me, it said over the rip of air being sucked violently into the reaction point. All Mikosh could see of it was the distended shadow of its head as it was sucked in up to its shoulder. The people have made a tool of me. Its grip tightened and Mikosh screamed, clawing at the floor beneath him to get further away from the reaction point. A clever tool. What do you use it for? Its head had been sucked in completely. Mikosh couldn't understand how it was still talking. I am beyond tools, it said. Will you join me in the void beyond this tear? It tugged at Mikosh and the man did everything in his power to get away from it. From the steadily growing reaction point, he screamed and kicked like a child. Then it was over. The reaction point flickered like an old light bulb and vanished into itself. The thing's phalanges released his arm, allowing a new and fresh pain to flood into Mikosh. Its grip had served as a sort of tourniquet, cutting off the blood flow to the clearly broken arm and, thus, all the pain he was now feeling. What was left of the Kaid thing, a disconnected arm, a structure that might have been a badly chewed human hip bone, and Kaid's ruined legs, fell into the seedbed with a poof of dust. Mikosh got to his feet and clambered back out of the seedbed as fast as possible, honestly expecting the thing to come back to life. The thing? Better Mikosh asked, jogging alongside Mikosh now, a big, sad grin on his face. 
Are you sure that was a thing? Mikosh looked past the assignment desk, where something large was crawling out of the rows. It seemed intent on some other purpose, though its baleful yellow eyes passed curiously over Mikosh. Some of them, at least. That's supposed to be real? Better Mikosh asked. Why isn't it coming after you like your supposed Kaid thing? I don't know, Mikosh said, pressing the call button on the elevator. The doors opened immediately. What I think is that you're still high as shit and this is all you dealing with the trauma of the accident, Better Mikosh said, following him onto the elevator. He really was Better Mikosh. Regular Mikosh only just noticed the man was also a good two inches taller than him, in addition to being well-spoken and handsome. What does that even mean? That means you just murdered your co-worker after he tried to murder you, Better Mikosh said. You had to go and throw that line about the catalyst in his face, huh? The imaginary, superior Mikosh crossed his arms behind his head and smiled. The incident jarred you, hurt him. And maybe he got a good old sniff of the catalyst, too, so he got it in his mind to take you out real quick. If you think about it, it's a perfect crime, Valona said in Mikosh's ear. He rubbed the spot over the transmitter on his rebreather. Now that he was inside the air-scrubbed elevator, he didn't need it anymore. He took it off and dropped it on the floor, rubbing his jaw. The goggles came off, too. All that confusion? Some asteroid crashing into the station and causing this huge industrial accident? Bologna continued. Her voice was clear as a bell despite the transmitter being on the floor of the elevator. Outside the window, the local star was growing brighter. The cluster of asteroids in the belt near the station had started to move with an increase in magnetic activity, shuffling loose of their rotting orbits and casting odd shadows in the stellar dust around them. You were hurt and couldn't get out in time. Valona said. It's not like the Blackwell Corporation is going to investigate super hard. What about this? Mikosh said, holding up the badly damaged left arm of his suit. The material was frozen in place. The pain of the injury was all but making him sick. He was probably twice as pale as usual. Didn't you hurt it when you got thrown by the impact? Better Mikosh offered. Autodocs can't set bones without a doctor present. Valona said. What about the monster? That thing crawling up out of the rose? Mikosh tried to see the thing in question out the windows, but the elevator was already too high to get an angle. A second later, the windows switched to flat black as the elevator entered the tube that fed the uppermost parts of the station. Just you trying to make sense of the incident? That big explosion and all that? Valona said. It's not uncommon to use coping mechanisms like that in cases of trauma. You probably have post-traumatic stress disorder from the accident already. It's not like it takes time to set in. The elevator arrived at the floor above admin, where the station's lifeboats sat recessed in black cylinders with bright orange caution signs ringing them. Mikosh took a deep breath when he stepped out of the elevator and saw the light from one of the dark pods shining into the spherical docking room. Valona was still waiting for him, which meant there was still time for the evacuation. He set his hand on the guardrail and paused, noticing something odd. He looked at the otherwise clean palm of his glove 
and saw it was now covered with dark, shining red. The color was almost black. The smell was unmistakable. Tacky blood glistened where Mikosh had smeared it over the guardrail. It could be yours, better Mikosh said, walking alongside him toward the glowing white light spilling from the escape pod. Or even Kaid's. You're not right in the head, after all. That atropine might not have really started kicking in. He chuckled. Then again, maybe somebody was bleeding up here, too. Bleeding bad. Mikosh looked inside the pod and saw a woman sitting on the ring of upholstered white seats. They looked nice, but were also fairly formidable restraints, fitted with four-point harnesses and all sorts of other amenities. The woman was already wearing the beetle black full body suit and helmet that came standard in the evacuation pods. If he had longer, Mikosh would have put one on as well. She wiggled her fingers at him. Hello. But she didn't say anything, instead tapping the front of the helmet where her mouth would be and shrugging. He wouldn't be able to hear her without putting on a helmet too, but there would be time for that soon. Probably. Maybe. The door shut behind him and he took his seat as the pod began sliding slowly out of the blast hatch and into the vacuum of space. Disc-shaped windows over all the seats allowed him a view of the stars and the twinkling specks of the other pods blipping out distress calls while they waited for the rescue boats. Better Mikosh had taken a seat next to the woman. Valona. It was Valona. Of course it's me, silly, she said in his ear. Who else would it be? But it wasn't her, of course. That voice and better Mikosh weren't real. They were just the fading after effects of a bad dose of catalyst. Maybe even some head trauma. You know, I was saying all that in the elevator and you seemed pretty quick to dismiss me. Better Mikosh said, smiling at Mikosh and running a finger down the side of the woman's helmet. Mikosh could see the blurry shape of himself reflected in the gently curving dark of the plastic. He took a deep breath and looked around the lifeboat, eyes lingering on the bright red handle that would blow the hatch and jettison the oxygen and everything else. In case of fire, the sign above it read. Nobody wants to believe they're crazy, but sometimes safe is better than sorry, isn't it? Better Mikosh said. The pod was rotating slowly, causing the distant stars to slip past the windows. The woman, Valona, of course it was Valona, stretched her arms above her head and then raised her fingers to the clasps that would allow the helmet to depressurize and detach. There's no real reason to take that off, better Mikosh said, looking Mikosh dead in the eyes. His smile was calm and collected, slightly mischievous. I'm not going to sit in this capsule for potentially hours and not talk to you, Valona said in his ear. It's so weird talking to the black of people's masks when you're stuck in these things. It's impersonal. So, Mikosh, which of us is right, you think? Better, Mikosh asked. She pushed the clasps loose and the helmet popped upward slightly as it depressurized. The hiss was jarring. The great blue orb of the local star slid perfectly into the center of the window behind her head, bathing Mikosh in its pale light. 
Her hands pushed upward on the helmet, allowing a spill of dark hair to fall loose onto her shoulders. Mikosh felt his heart roaring in his chest, thinking of the red lever set into the wall of the escape pod and wondering if he'd see blue eyes. Well, folks, that was Dogstar. What did you think? Have you ever experienced an extremely dangerous workplace or even an industrial accident? Have you ever sat in an escape pod wondering whether the person sitting across from you is really a person at all? Let us know in the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. The Horror and Lit Club is a place where fans of the show, some call themselves Westsiders or even Westies now, can talk to each other about the show, the recommendations, and anything else that comes to mind. The only real rules are don't be a dick to each other and try to keep your posts focused on horror and literature. But even that last rule is pretty soft, so come on by. Just search for the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. Hey folks, if you didn't know, each episode of the Westside Fairy Tales takes something in the ballpark of 40 plus hours of work. Most of that is writing, reading, rereading, rewriting, and editing again and again until the stories are just where we want them. On top of that is the additional time sink of recording, editing, and all the miscellaneous extra things like paying taxes, marketing, and website and podcast hosting fees. There are a lot of ways to support our work here, and the easiest by far is to just buy yourself a nice new official logo mug from the merch store at westsidefairytales.com merch. Like I said during the promo break, we have plenty of options, and it's a great way to support the podcast and get a little something you can hold in your hands in return. This month, we unveiled our new Stay Safe Out There t-shirt, a unisex tee featuring the show's tagline and some of Yui Breedlove's original episode art from fan-favorite story, Toda Americana Part 3. You can save 10% on that shirt for the next week with our early listener discount by using code DOGSTAR at checkout. For those of you who hate advertisements on podcasts, for just a dollar you can get rid of those and not have to worry about hearing them again. At least on the West Side Fairy Tales. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales and subscribe at the $1 level. That'll give you access to an RSS feed you can plug into most any podcatcher to listen to the special episodes at your convenience. For $5, you get access to monthly ebooks of the episodes, as well as an entire backlog of story PDFs from the last season and a half, as well as access to the exclusive Behind the Story episodes, in which I discuss the creation of the month's story and talk at length about a million other things that sort of kind of inspired me to write it. And, of course, the most important thing you can do to support us is to share this show. Don't sweat leaving a review on Apple, but if you could share this episode on Reddit, on Facebook, or Twitter groups, or even in forums you're a member of, it helps the show immensely. So, if you like the West Side Fairy Tales, please, please, please share this episode with the world. Next month, we join a couple of boys interred in a West Virginia lunatic asylum as they try to survive both turn-of-the-century treatments and a creature that roams the bunks at night hurting kids in their sleep. A creature called the Tiki Topper. I hope you'll join us on the first Friday of May for our story, The Three Flights of Mateo Jefferson, and until next time, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content here in copyright 2020, WSF Productions, LLC. Thank you.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.